What's my favorite book in the Bible? That's right. So guess what? You get to hear from Genesis again this week. So last week we focused on Jesus as creator. He's absolutely God in the flesh. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Word incarnate. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and through him all things were made that have been made. Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. When God created the earth, he created it perfectly. If the Bible stopped after chapter 2 of Genesis, things would be infinitely different, wouldn't they? Things would be just awesome. We'd still be in perfection. We'd still be in the Garden of Eden. It would be amazing. We would have eternal life, but it would be life that never had any decay, never sickness, never anything wrong. But I'm sorry to tell you that chapter 3 came, and we are introduced into a character that we hadn't seen yet when we came in last week. Yeah, Eve. Yeah, that's who it was. No, she was there in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Very funny. No, we're introduced to Satan. The great serpent of old, the dragon. If Satan wouldn't have seduced Eve, sin would never have come into the world. We'd be just as God intended us to be, without sin, holy and righteous in his sight. But God didn't stop his perfect plan from taking place. He had redemption as part of the plan from the very beginning. He wasn't surprised by what happened in the garden that day. Nothing catches God off guard. He knew full well that man could never uphold his holy standard. That's why the Apostle John says in Revelation 13.8 that Jesus was slain before the creation of the world. It says the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. And it's funny that... I don't even talk to them about what I'm preaching on. All they have is the title. They don't have a clue, but we sing this song about the Lamb of God, and Jesus is that Lamb of God who was slain before the creation of the world. God wasn't surprised by what happened in the garden that day. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and there was a plan for it. Jesus, the God-man, would come and pay that price. He would die on that cross for our sins and make that difference. He would open the door to salvation. But prior to this encounter with Satan, Adam and Eve had never even encountered temptation. They didn't even know what temptation was. They didn't have a reason to wonder what it was. They weren't tempted by evil. They were living in perfect harmony with God in the garden. But even though they had no desire for for sin in their DNA whatsoever, Satan had a plan himself. He wanted nothing more than to change that fact that sin was not a part of their DNA. So we're going to walk through this today. Seed of promise. We're going to learn about what that means, that that Jesus is that seed of promise. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to do a little walking through through Genesis 3. I'm going to read the first 13 verses to start. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees that are in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then a man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The first thing I want you to notice in this chapter is this is the fall of man. This is where things get set off course in God's perfect plan. Satan seduces Eve into doing the one thing that God had forbid her and Adam to take place, to, to share in. She ate the forbidden fruit. That fruit of, from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. She sinned. Therefore, every human being to ever walk on the face of this earth from this day forward is born with a sin nature. We are destined to sin because of that nature. There's no way out. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all utterly depraved and unable to live a righteous life. Thanks a lot, Eve. Amen. <laughs> Sorry, guy. Sorry, girls. I had to do it. <sighs> we may have times in our lives where we actually do good things. We treat people well. You know, we share with people. We, we, we care for our children. We care for our loved ones. We give good gifts. Um, we, we help people out when we're in need, like, you know, the church needs some landscaping done, and people come at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning when it's real hot, and they come and take care of it. Why? Because we love, we love people. We do. We, we love in certain ways, even apart from Christ. We, we do good moral things. But guess what? We're still sinners. That morality that we carry, aside from our relationship with Christ, is like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Apart from Jesus Christ. We can even be sacrificial. Which there's no other. There's no better example of sacrifice than Jesus right. We can, we can be sacrificial. We can, we can give up our own things for other people. Even without Christ. But that doesn't make us right with God. There's nothing we can do. Or say. That can make us right with God. Nothing. So we're utterly depraved, and we need, obviously, what we talked about last week, we need that creator to come and make a difference in our lives, to regenerate us, make us into something new by our faith. So God responds to Satan's sin with a sharp rebuke accompanied by a prophecy for a future redemption for humanity. There's one verse that we'll really nail, in, nail down today. That's Genesis 3.15. It's going to be our focal verse. I want you to memorize this verse. I'm going to read it in a moment. But as I read it, 
I want you to take in what it says. Because this particular verse is the very first prophecy about the Messiah who would come to set Israel free and ultimately to set all of us free from our sin and the control that it has over our lives. Despite Adam and Eve's sin and our inheritance of that sin nature, we're not without hope. Let me say that again. Even though Adam and Eve messed it up for all of us, and they did, but then guess what? We, we messed it up too. We're not without hope. We talked a lot about that hope last week. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, has made a way, the only way for us to be reconciled to God. That way was first spoken of here in Genesis chapter 3. After Satan's plan to seduce Eve came to fruition, God cursed Satan and the earth and spelled out the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and their sinful nature. So the second thing you need to learn is that God curses. So let's look again at Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here's our key verse. This is our memory verse for the week. Put that back up there for me, Caleb, would you? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed. Offspring is a little shady. I want to use the word seed there. And hers. I will put, all, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thanks, Adam. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until, the, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, this, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So one more time, our memory verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This again is the very first prophecy about the Messiah in scripture. This is the first time that we hear about Jesus as a suffering servant. This is the first prophecy that says, guess what Satan, even though you're there in the garden, even though you seduced Eve to do the one thing I said not to do, it doesn't matter because I'm God and I have already made a way. Isn't that awesome to know that God is omniscient? He, he knows everything. There's nothing outside of God's knowledge. 
There's nothing that we can do that's ever going to surprise him. There's nothing Satan will ever do that's going to surprise him. God is in complete control. He's sovereign over all things. No matter what we choose to do, it doesn't thwart God's plan. We talk about that a lot going through Genesis, don't we? In our, in our Bible study together. Nothing we do can ever thwart God's plan. God is in control, even, even when we have choices. That's amazing. How big is God that no matter what we choose to do, he still doesn't get, nothing changes for him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a pretty awesome God that we serve to know that he can just completely handle whatever we throw at him. Now, God cursed Satan by commanding him to always be at the feet of every creature. He says he's going he's to crawl on, the, on his belly in the dust. We see that curse of Satan, that serpent of old, affecting every snake we see today. Have you ever seen a snake stand up other than like a king cobra, but he goes right back down to crawl, doesn't he? So they all, all the poor snakes got, got hosed by Satan. Thanks a lot. They might have been able to stand up and do other things. Who knows? Not so much. They, they crawl on their belly. But some scholars believe that that curse of eating dust all his life is actually him tasting death every day. Because it says in, in Genesis 1 that Adam was formed from the dust. But until God breathed the breath of life into Adam, what was Adam? He was dead. There was no life in him until he had breath. So he was just dust. So every day as Satan crawls on his belly and he tastes the dust of the earth, he's tasting the death that, that Adam had before God breathed life into him. Satan has to taste death every day, ultimately until he faced his final death at the lake of fire. This will be the case all the way until he faces that destruction in the lake of fire. Isn't it good to know that our enemy is already defeated? Isn't it an awesome thought that even though we are given over to temptation so many times, it doesn't matter because Satan is defeated. Jesus has already won the victory, and he says it right here in Genesis 3.15. I've already won the victory. I'm going to come back to Satan's curse in just a moment. Ladies, I'm sure that many of you can relate to the curse that the woman received. Childbirth comes with great pains, great pains. I've had the privilege of seeing childbirth four times. And I got to tell you, it's like the most amazing thing ever that I've ever seen. I've never seen anything more miraculous than childbirth. Guys, if you were in, the, in there with your wives, you might know what I'm talking about. It's pretty wild. I really love that sight. But I got to tell you, the grip you get on your hands sometimes by the woman when she's actually feeling the childbirth process, oh my goodness. You might, break, you might not have you know, any bones left in your hands if you're holding her hand. But here's the thing, I can't imagine what that feels like for a woman. Ladies, does it hurt? All right, I'm just kidding. I know it hurts. I know it hurts. It's got to be the worst thing ever. For those of you ladies that have had like C-sections and things like that, I can imagine that hurts pretty, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, it's, you're really getting a real tear on your body. Thanks a lot, Eve. You can blame her. It's all her fault. She's awful. 
No, I'm kidding. I'm just, I'm just messing. I'm just messing. But I can imagine that it's awful. But that, that in and of itself, being part of the curse, is bad. But it's the second part. The second part is, is very, very big in our society right now. It says that her desire will be for her husband and that he will rule over her. Our society today is in shambles because of this very thing. I don't want to get too into what's going on in the world right now, but I'm just going to tell you that God had a plan. He had a plan. He set things in a certain way. And we have people trying to circumvent God's plan on a daily basis in every way, shape, and form. And God's order of how a family should live and, and God's order of how the church should go is a mess. And it's a mess because of sin. And you know why it's a mess because of sin? Because too many of us want to sit on the throne. Sometimes we need to just step back and just say, you know what, God? You're God and I'm not. You sit on the throne. I'm going to step down here. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to give you the glory that you deserve and I'm going to stop trying to steal it. Now, if I just stepped on somebody's toes, take it up with the Holy Spirit. It's not my problem. Because God is God and we are not. His ways are not our ways. And we have to learn that sometimes God is trying to humble us for a reason. So if you're sitting on the throne right now, I have one word for you, and you don't hear it very often. Greg, what's that one word? If you're sitting on the throne, what should you do? Repent. Get off of the throne. You don't belong on it. It's not yours. Sorry. I'm sorry to step on toes, but God is God, and we are not. Now... Being that her desire will be for her husband, it can really become problematic in marriage. We, we forget gender roles and we forget who's who and what God has called us to do. And I'm not the guy who thinks that women submit to every man. Because guess what? If she submits to you, it's only because you're walking in righteousness. Because if you're not walking in righteousness, ladies, you better call him on it. Because guess what? If a man's not walking in righteousness so that his wife can trust that he's following God and walk in step, lockstep with him together as a, as a married couple, then he's in sin. When we do it God's way, guess what? We all flourish. And people see it. And guess what? God is glorified. And people want what you have because you get off the throne and let God sit where he belongs. And you just humble yourselves and walk in righteousness. All right, that's enough of that soapbox. Let's move on. The earth was cursed because of the sin of Adam. I don't know about you guys, but who in here hates pulling weeds as much as I do? Oh, my goodness. Flower beds are terrible. If you have a garden, you have to constantly keep watch, separating the wheat and the chaff. It's a mess. The earth is a mess. Have you ever tried to like build a fence? Anybody in there ever tried to put up a fence? And you try to dig into the ground and you're, the soil's so hard and you can't get into it? Thanks a lot, Adam. Just doesn't work. Because this earth is cursed by sin. 
You know, I joke with people at work. I get into a lot of spiritual conversations. I'm a mailman for anybody that doesn't know. I get into spiritual conversations while we're still in the office, and we talk about this, and people talk about global warming. And I'm getting off on a soapbox, but just give me a second. People talk about global warming. You know what I say? The earth is getting hot. And it is our fault. But you know what we did to make the earth get hot? We sin. That's why there's global warming. The earth is getting hot because eventually God's going to burn it all up by fire and give us a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? Amen. So yeah, I believe in global warming because we sin. That's the only reason why. Not because we have too much emissions or anything like that. It's because we sin. That's why the earth's getting hot. That's why God is he's preparing to give us a new heaven and a new earth for those of us that are in Christ. Bring it on. Let's go. You know, if, if it weren't for sin and this curse on the earth, fruits and vegetables would always be good. All your fruit would be ripe all the time. Your vegetables would always be in season. They would taste so good. All your kids would eat their vegetables. I could actually put something green on one of my kids' plate and they'll actually eat it. Not so much. I guess it's good that we could put like cheese and ranch and Amen. salt and pepper and all that on that kind of stuff to make it better. But thanks a lot, Adam. You messed that one up. Finally, Adam would return to the dust when his now mortal body would decay. God institutes the first animal sacrifice found in Scripture to temporarily cover the shame and nakedness caused by Adam and Eve's sin. And then God banishes them from the garden. He placed cherubim. Now, we joke about cherubim, okay? A lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about angels, and I'm not going to get into it because I don't have time. But when we talk about cherubim, we make this joke. If it's a seraph, it's real pretty, it has wings, it's flying. If it's a cherub, it's a little chubby guy who's blocking something. And that's what God did. He put a couple cherubim in front of the, the tree of, of life so that they couldn't get to it with flaming swords to really stop them. So picture the little chubby cherub. Those are the guys that are in the way. I'm just kidding. I don't know what a cherub looks like. So don't, don't write me letters and don't email me. I don't really know what they look like, but I just think cherub and chubby match. All right. Number three, God gives the first messianic prophecy found in Scripture to reveal his plan of redemption. One more time, our memory verse says that God put enmity between the woman, between Satan and the woman, between his seed and her seed. He will crush his head and you will, crush his, you will, you will um, strike his heel. In God's cursing of Satan, he reveals plainly the plan of redemption that will ultimately bring Satan to his destruction God will put enmity between, the Satan, between Satan and the woman. There will be hostility. That's what enmity means. It means hostility between the woman and Satan. Satan will always be opposed to the will of God. He's always going to fight back. He won't give up until he's crushed. He won't give up until he's thrown into that lake of fire. Satan wants nothing more than to take as many human beings with him as he can. He knows what his fate is. He knows that he's doomed. But he wants as many people to come with him as he can. And you know who he really loves to attack? Christians. He wants the people of God to fall. You know why? Because when the world sees people of God fall, why should they trust in our God? If we can't walk the walk, why should they trust in us? Well, there's grace for us when we do fall. But ultimately, we should be striving 
to walk in righteousness so that we can be the light of the world that God's called us to be, that we can be the messengers of reconciliation that God has called us to be. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. His goal has never changed from the time he was cast out of heaven. When he said, I will ascend to the throne. I will be like God. I will know all things. He was cast out of heaven, and he, ever since, has been running around like a roaring lion, preying on all of us, trying to devour as many of us as he possibly can. He doesn't want to be doomed alone. He wants to take as many as he possibly can. And that's where we come in. We can't let that happen. We have to be the voice. We have to let God speak through us. We have to be vessels of reconciliation. That, we, that God can be glorified by who we are and how we carry ourselves. Now, there's an interesting statement by God. God says that the seed will be of the woman. It's the woman's seed. Now, I don't want to be overly graphic, try to be politically correct, and I'm not a biologist. That should have been funny to some people. Not a biologist. I don't know why. But I'm pretty sure that women don't produce seed. I don't think I've ever seen a woman that produced seed. She produces the eggs. That's man's one job, the seed, guys. One job. So how is God going to put enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of a woman? How can she have a seed? Well, does anybody remember what our lesson from last week was, our one big takeaway? Does anybody remember what it was? What was our one takeaway? Somebody said it. Say it out loud. Scripture what? That's right. Scripture interprets Scripture. Thank you, Diana. She's on it. So we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So this is what Isaiah 6.14 says. It says that, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Do you know what that sign is? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the virgin will give birth. Well, that's interesting. Where's the man at that had one job? He wasn't there. The virgin will be with birth. This is the amazing mystery of the seed of promise in Scripture. God always had a plan for redemption. Again, Revelation 13, 8 says that the Lamb of God was slain before the creation of the world. So God wasn't surprised by the fall. He's omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He's never caught off guard. And when the perfect time came for the seed of promise to come into the world, the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and she conceived and ultimately gave birth to the sinless Son of God. That seed of promise, Jesus Christ. Number four, Satan hopes to see the destruction of the seed of promise. And I am going to fly through this part. Satan hopes to see the destruction of the seed of promise. After receiving the curse from God, Satan turned his attention to destruction. He already wanted to destroy Adam and Eve because they were the human creation of God somebody who was made better than he is. Remember that the, what the Bible says about the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He has been trying to kill the seed of promise since that horrible day in the garden. Let's take a walk through the Bible to see some of the ways that Satan has tried to destroy the seed of promise. And I got, I got plenty of time. Here we go. 
Don't forget, I'm going on vacation. I'm just kidding. It's not about that. I'll stay here until 3 o'clock if we have to. My wife might kill me, but let's go. Okay. When Adam and Eve had their first son, Cain. Now, keep in mind, sin had already come into the world before Cain was born. So Cain is born with that sin nature. Then he has a little brother, Abel. And God is there still in the midst. He's not right there walking with them any longer. He's there. His spirit is, you know, speaking to them in, in ways, but he's not there walking with them any longer. And Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. And Abel's offering is the right offering. Cain's is the wrong one. And Cain gets jealous. And it's funny because God says to Cain, why are you downcast? Why, why are you, you know, why are you salty because your brother gave a good gift and you didn't? You know, take, you know, take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ as we learn from Paul. And what happens? Cain kills Abel. So Cain, in Eve's mind, would have been that seed of promise that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And this story happens in Genesis chapter 4. Okay? Ten verses later, we learn about Cain and Abel, and Abel killing, Abel dying to his brother Cain. So she thought Cain was the seed of promise, her firstborn son. Well, guess what? He just killed his brother, so he's in sin. He can't be the seed of promise. That's not going to work out. So there's the first time you see the devil rejoicing. He's, ha, got him. Not so much. Because Adam and Eve had another son named Seth who would ultimately keep the line of the seed of promise going. But sorry, Satan, you lose. He tends to lose a lot in Scripture if you pay attention. He thought he'd won the victory, but not so much. Soon after, after Seth was born and he would carry on that seed, we will fast forward to Genesis chapter 6. We meet a guy named Noah. Noah was an old drunk. No, I'm kidding. We only read one thing where he got drunk. and He's not like an old drunk. Anyway, we know what happens with Noah. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, one wife each, get onto the ark that he built for 120 years. That ark's built. The massive global flood comes. That water canopy that we talked about last week bursts. All the waters from inside the earth burst, and that's how the whole, water, the whole earth was full of full of the flood waters, and that's how everything was destroyed. But those eight people on that ark still lived with two of every animal of their kind. So God used the ark as a picture of redemption. You had to be in the ark to survive the destruction. We have to be in Christ to survive the destruction. So we see types and shadows. We don't just see Jesus himself walking in Genesis, but we also see types and shadows. The ark is a picture of that, a picture of us being in Christ. The world had become exceedingly evil by the time that it was time for Noah to start building that ark. Do you ever think that the world we live in now is probably like the world that Noah lived in? Do you ever think that God looks down at, our, at humanity today and says, Wow, the world is exceedingly evil. Do you ever think that the things that go on, genocide, the, the homicide rate here in America, um, not getting too, too into this, but abortion and rape 
and incest and adultery and lying and stealing and all these things that go on in our world today. Do you think God looks down and says, man, it's just like it was with Noah in his day? Thank God that he promised to never again destroy the earth by flood. You know, when it rains, what happens at the end of a rainstorm? What do we see? We see a rainbow, the promise of God that he will never, want, never again destroy the earth by flood. I love rainbows, just so you know. They're a picture of God's love. If he hadn't made that promise, I would be looking for a guy somewhere in the middle of nowhere, starting with a bunch of wood, building something. Because I'd be wanting to get on the boat with him. Just letting you know. Because that's what I see in the world today. The world's a mess. It's only a mess because of sin. That's why. So I'd be looking for that guy building that boat. But God saved a remnant. That remnant included another guy in the line that leads to the seed of promise. That's Shem, Noah's son. It wasn't Noah's oldest son, but he was next in line. That's where we get the name Semites. That's where we know that the, the people of God ultimately came from Shem. And We get down, we move a little further with that. Ten generations pass by, and you know who was born? Abram. God called Abram out of his homeland to set him apart to be the father of many nations. God changed his name to Abraham, and he was the first patriarch of the nation of Israel. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Satan thought Abraham was going to die on several occasions. One time in Egypt when he was facing a king who was going to steal his wife, so he said he was his sister. Another time when he tried to rescue his nephew, when his nephew was in a bind with with, um, four kings who came against five kings. and You can read about that in Genesis chapter 13. And then when he seemed too old to sire a child, he hadn't had any children, but he's supposed to be the father of many nations. 75 years old. Satan thought he had him. And then, when the baby wasn't coming and his wife says, take my maidservant and, you know, and have a baby through her. So he cheats on his wife to have a baby with her maidservant. He didn't get killed for that either, just so you know. Dang, ladies, are you here? Did you hear me? I know you, I know I'd be dead if I went with that deal. Anyway. Um, that was her idea, by the way. Sorry, Satan, that story didn't end the way you wanted it to. Abraham didn't die childless, did he? He actually had eight sons by the time it was all said and done. But it was his second son. His second son was the promised child that God promised would be the next in line for the seed of promise to come on the scene. Isaac. God tested Abraham's faith. He sent Abraham up onto Mount Moriah and he said, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. Even though he had an an older son, Ishmael, your only son. You know why he's his only son? He's the promised son. He's the one that the Messiah would ultimately come through. You read that also in Genesis. Abraham went to slay his son, and God spoke from heaven and said, No, 
don't lay a hand on the boy. He gave him, of course, he gave him a ram in the thicket that he ultimately sacrificed and Isaac lived. The devil might have cried a little that day, I think. I think he shed some tears that day because he thought he had it. He thought he had it. Hi, God told you to do that and you're going to do it. He's going to die and I'm going to win. Not so much. God never lets his plan be thwarted by anything we can do or say. Keep that in mind. Doesn't it strengthen your faith to know that we serve a God who will never leave us or forsake us? And he will not be stopped. His plan will never, ever be thwarted. Isaac had two sons of his own, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob faced many trials on his way to becoming Israel. I'm sure Satan thought he had almost won a time or two again with Jacob. But Jacob ended up having 12 sons of his own. The first three, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, were knuckleheads, and they forfeited their right as the first, second, and third-born sons. I'm not going to get into too many details as to what they did, but, man, it was shady. You can, you can read about what Reuben did in Genesis chapter 34, and you can read about the other two knuckleheads. I'm sorry, what Simeon and Levi did in, in chapter 34, and right before what they did, you can read what Reuben did, and his was probably worse. But... Those three forfeited their right, and that leads us to Judah. We're going to talk more about Judah in a few weeks. Judah gets one chapter in Genesis that's dedicated to him. It's chapter 38, and it comes in the middle of nowhere. And we'll talk more about him and why he's so important in this line. But that's ultimately who the seed of promise, the fourth son, becomes that patriarch in the line of the seed of promise. Along the way, many famines, various other circumstances could have allowed the devil to think that he had triumphed over God's plan of redemption, that he had beaten the seed of promise. And then Israel asked for a king. They rejected God as their ruler. And now Satan's chomping at the bit. He's like, yes, you really messed up this time. You asked for a king. And it's interesting, God appoints, even though we know from Genesis chapter 38 and on, that Judah is where the line of the seed of promise goes through, that it has to come through Judah. But God doesn't pick somebody from Judah as the first king of Israel. He picks a guy from Benjamin, tallest, a head taller than everybody else. King Saul comes on the scene. But we know that that doesn't work with the seed of promise. And ultimately, Saul does something really stupid. He doesn't completely annihilate somebody that God said to completely annihilate. He leaves some of them standing and some of their sheep. And he gets checked for it and ultimately rejected as king. And God chooses another man to be king. And that man is King David. Guess what tribe King David was from? He was from the tribe of Judah. David did a lot of amazing things. But man, did he have his own sin issues. Despite being called the man after God's own heart, David was a wicked, wretched man in a lot of ways. He was a terrible father. Guys, if you want to learn how to be a good dad, do a lot of what David didn't do. Be the opposite of David as a father. He didn't pay attention when his kids messed up. He didn't pay attention when they were in need. He just let them fall by the wayside. So don't follow David as a father. Follow him as a guy who trusts God and recognizes his sin. 
When he sinned with Bathsheba and he had her husband killed and he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, you can read in Psalm 51 how David realizes he's a broken, wretched man and that he needed redemption and that only by the blood of Jesus could he ever be covered. And he recognized that he would need that Messiah that's going to come through his family line. David was an adulterous murderer who stunk as a father. And as a result, he faced many, many consequences of those evil actions. Four of David's children paid the price for his sin with Bathsheba. The first son, the one that she got pregnant with when, he, when Uriah was out fighting her husband. And David was at home when he shouldn't have been. That first child died, didn't even make it past infancy. His daughter gets raped by one of his other sons. His son, who was the half-brother of that son, who was the full brother of the sister that was raped, then goes and kills the one who raped her, and then ultimately he gets killed when he's trying to take over the kingdom. So four of David's children pay the price for his sin. Imagine how the devil must have thought when those three boys died. Got him! Not so much. God promised David that his house and his kingdom would endure forever before God. His throne would be established forever. The seed of promise would come through the line of David. And after Solomon, David's son who he had with Bathsheba, the second son he had with her, after his reign ended, the Israel split into two nations. You had the tribe, you had the, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel, ten tribes to the north, two to the south. And we would have a line of kings in Israel who were evil, 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 evil men, none of which were from the line of David. But David family was kept in, in Judah. And David never failed to have one of his sons, grandsons, and so on and so forth, sit on the throne of David. Israel was exiled to Babylon by the king, by the king of Babylon for 70 years. When the Persians overtook Babylon, and you can look this up in history books, you can even read about this, it's pretty interesting. There was an Agagite man. Now, didn't I just mention something about King Saul not killing a people group that he was supposed to totally annihilate? Well, there was a man from Agag, which is that people group. His name was Haman. And we can read about this in the book of Esther. So if you've read the book of Esther, you know a little bit about Haman. Haman set out to destroy every Jew that was on the face of the earth. His goal was to completely annihilate Israel because that's what they were supposed to do to his people. And that's why Saul ultimately was rejected as king. And Haman's plan almost worked. He had the king of Persia ready to, ready to put an edict in that said, you know what, they're all gone. But Queen Esther, a Jew herself, made sure that the seed of promise was not to be eliminated. Remember that God never wavers on his promises, no matter what they are. If God says it, it will be. Satan might have little moments where he thinks he's winning. But he's not. 
Satan will never win anything. God has won the victory. Don't let Satan fill your head with lies and lead you to believe that you can't be redeemed. God is able. When we open the New Testament, we see that God never fails. His plans never fail. And that brings me to the last point. God saw to it that the seed of promise was preserved and brought into this world. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, if you would, please. Now, for some of you who are the ancestry nuts, you're about to like what I read. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, who was the mother, was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed... Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're almost there. Stick with me with these names. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Matthew gives us the genealogy that proves that Jesus is the seed of promise that came through Abraham. Genesis 5 and 11 give us two genealogies. They help us to understand. They tie this genealogy here in Matthew back to Adam. Which if you read in Luke chapter 3, you can see that he has a genealogy as well. It's a little harder to read because the names get a little trickier. Despite 14 generations living as shepherds and nomads, facing opposition from all sides, another 14 generations of kings who were up and down at best, most of them were terrible. Joining in the worship of false gods and repenting only to do it all over again to 14 generations of men who were striving to rebuild the nation of Israel, ultimately to find Jesus the King come on the scene. God never once wavered on his promise to bring the Messiah to the world through a virgin seed by an immaculate conception. Brought on by the Holy Spirit of God. I'll say that one more time. God never once wavered on his promise to bring the Messiah, that seed of promise, to the world through a virgin's immaculate conception brought on by the Holy Spirit of God. What Satan wanted to vanquish 
only served to ultimately vanquish him. May God be glorified by the truth of the seed of promise that we find in Genesis 3.15 that's carried out all through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, to the cross, to the empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope for a future eternity with the Lord of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth. May we be humbled by the fact that God never tells a lie and that his promises never waver and they always, always come to pass. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of promise that is found in Genesis 3.15. Jesus crushed the head of Satan by the power of his resurrection. Jesus Christ is the seed of promise. He's the God of all gods, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the Lord of glory. He is our peace. He is our strength. He is our strong tower. He is our banner. He is our healer. He is our provider. He is our hope for tomorrow. He is our hope for today. He holds our future in his hands. May we never, ever cease to praise him. Let's bow our heads and pray. As our, as our heads are bowed, I want you to think about this. I want you to think. Do you know that seed of promise? Has God drawn you by the power?